We don't talk about what goes on out in the open waters 200 miles offshore, but we'll do that this morning as I am joined today by Peter Oster, Yukon Research Professor Emeritus of Marine Sciences and Senior Research Scientist at Mystic Aquarium. Talk about who's in charge 200 miles from shore. Peter, good morning. Thanks for joining me for today. And why is this matter of who's in charge so far offshore so important? Well, good <clears throat> good morning, and thanks for your in, your interest in, in having me on today. Uh, so, what, what goes on far offshore? Well, so back up for a second. We have jurisdiction out to 200 miles from our coasts, and and most nations around the world had agreed on extending their jurisdictions out to the, the, the edges of their continental shelves, 200 miles or shorter, if if the boundaries between countries uh, uh, join join sooner, but Beyond 200 miles, which is most of the global ocean, uh, there are a series of existing treaties that govern particular types of activities. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the treaty that we're talking about today uh, regarding biodiversity beyond national jurisdictions fills in lots of gaps. So there has been historically treaties that govern uh, fishing, in areas beyond national jurisdiction are called the high seas, the water column, uh, and the resources within it, like migrate, you know, tunas that migrate between countries and sharks and swordfish. And those kinds of species are governed by a range of, uh, a range of treaties that are either global in scope or between nations in a particular region, like the U.S. is part of the Northwest Atlantic Fishery Organization. Uh, and that includes the United States, Canada, Iceland, European Union, and a number of other countries that fish in the North Atlantic. And this treaty organization manages uh, uh, well things like allowable catch and the kinds of gear that you can use to fish and where you can fish. There's also uh, international agreement called uh, called the uh, International Seabed Authority that manages mining. Uh, on the in, on the high seas. Well, and, and under that agreement, this is called the area. It's not called the high seas because it governs the seabed. And there's a number of of, uh, of there's a framework for doing this that's that was developed by international consensus. But through those kinds of agreements, there are still lots of gaps in terms of conserving biodiversity overall and coordinating between nations about assessing the impacts of different activities, especially as seabed mining. Uh, begins to ramp up uh, in in more areas. So this treaty that 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 began that where negotiations began back in 2018 was to draft was to develop a legally binding instrument, uh, and it, this is all within the UN Law of the Sea Treaty that go, that was originally signed back in or began in 1982 for the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction. That was, a, I guess, a bit of a mouthful. So, Peter, I take my boat off Mystic, and I go 300 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean, and I violate some of the terms of this biodiversity and areas beyond natural jurisdiction treaty. Who rousts me? Who polices this when I misbehave? Well, so, well, for, I mean, if you've got a little boat in Mystic, you're probably not doing anything that's a treaty violation. Uh, well, you know, I guess I shouldn't say that. If you go out and catch, uh, 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 you know, Catch catch a whole bunch of tuna and bring it back to port. You might be in violation of U.S. fisheries laws. Uh, but because you're a U.S. flagged vessel, 
in, 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 on the high seas, the United States would be the, the jurisdiction uh, that would prosecute any violations, uh, assuming you were caught. I'm not quite sure what you could do in your little boat coming out of Mystic, but uh, unless you were you, you know you were you were mining the seabed in an area or or fishing in two in six thousand feet of water on top of a seamount uh, that was closed to fishing, you probably couldn't do anything with your boat. Well, what if I have a big boat? But more seriously, is it actually enforced? Do people actually get in trouble by violating this treaty? Oh yes, they do. Well, so there's no treaty yet. This particular treaty is still being negotiated. Uh, the, the, the ones, if you went out and fished on the high seas and you were in violation of, a, of a, one of the, the, the regional fishery management organization treaties, indeed, you're the nation where your vessel was flagged or, based on recent agreements, other treaty nations can enforce the rules. So there have been, in the Southern Ocean, uh, vessels, and I, and I, I don't remember the, 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 the nation who uh, that the, the flag vessel, the, the flag of the vessel who violated uh, the rules, but they were seized in Australia. The catch was seized. The ship was seized. Uh, there was some significant fines. Uh, so, be, be, because uh, these kinds of violations affect everyone. Peter, what is the effect of the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act in the USA on the negotiations involving these treaties? Well, so there's some higher level, uh, higher level uh, issues in, re- in regards to the uh, 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 Inflation Reduction Act, especially in terms of climate uh, and the, the, the conservation of biological diversity that influences the way the U.S. negotiates, negotiates uh, uh, at, the, at the United Nations. Could you explain the difference between, quote, the high seas and, quote, the area sure so the the, the high seas uh deals more with, with 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 uh resources that are in the water column you know from the surface to the seafloor and that's generally the term used in international fishing agreements and now with the current negotiations about biodiversity writ large and then the area is a term used uh in the treaty about uh uh seabed resources and mining, uh, that, that's part of the, the, the framework for the International Seabed Authority. Uh, if, if the BBNJ, the Biodiversity and Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty, is eventually passed, how much will that increase the area of the ocean that's protected from exploitation? Well, so ideally, significantly more, because right now it's by two point some odd percent uh globally and uh and through you know multiple uh studies uh, uh published in, in in journals the idea of protecting around 30 percent as a minimum for conserving and being able to sustainably use biological diversity in the long term is really a target uh the, the treaty is supposed to is 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 being negotiated and again these are all the sticky bits of of trying to uh address benefits to all nations because this is a, an area you know and it's not under u.s jurisdiction this is an area where resources are and, and benefits are to be shared uh the the topics in these negotiations are about marine genetic resources you know who 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 owns and how do we share the benefits of finding important 
compounds that that have significant uh, manufacturing or medical benefits, those kinds of things. Is the negotiation involving this treaty a case where USA and some other major countries want it, but there's some smaller countries or just other countries in general that are holding out and making it more difficult to get it passed? Uh, another area is the, the, the uh, content and sh- sharing and availability of environmental impact assessments. If I have a flagship uh, in the United States and I want to go out and mine a large area on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge for cobalt-rich metals, I mean, who's now especially globally, the availability of, uh, of rare earth elements that are used in a lot of manufacturing processes, like the things in my cell phone that I'm talking to you with, uh, are going are gonna to need to come at some point from the ocean. And as, as the economics of this change and how uh, we assess the impacts, how much mining in a particular area uh, is sustainable are all questions that are still open. And then finally, how do we deal with capacity building and transfer of marine technology to underdeveloped nations uh, so everyone globally can, can partake in this area that's of, of common, common use to, 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 to all nations, to all countries? Peter Roster, our guest, UConn Research Professor Emeritus of Marine Sciences. Peter, how did you first get interested in this concept in general of the seas, but in particular, our topic this morning, the high seas, 200-plus miles offshore? I'm sorry, say again? How did you get interested in this topic in the first place? Ah, I see. Uh, well, so I began uh, boy, 20, boy, it's 20 years ago. I hate to think about how the time flies. Uh, working on, uh, with colleagues, uh, working on seamounts, uh, extinct underwater volcanoes that are right off the northeast U.S., uh, right off south of Georgia's bank, are four seamounts, part of the New England seamount chain, and they're within our 200-mile limit. And my colleagues and I developed proposals to do the, the, the first ecological exploration uh, of, of, of these places out towards the, all, all the way out into the high seas, uh, and towards the mid Atlantic Ridge. And there was just it's this incredible diversity of organisms. I work on ecology of fishes, and, and, uh, some of my colleagues worked on, uh, in, invertebrate populations, deep sea corals. And we thought the first time we went out with Alvin, the submersible from, from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, we thought we were going to go do, you know, just run transects in, in these very precipitous environments, you know, it's kind of like very steep volcanic mountains uh, that you, you, you see in places like Hawaii. Uh, we just thought we were going to, you know, run out and, and sample and do transects to look at how, how organisms are distributed. And it became really apparent, quickly apparent, that there's a lot of these, these organisms that don't have any names because we've never sampled them before because it's hard to, to tow a net or a dredge over a seamount, and especially in the old days, you would just you know lose the gear on the bottom. So we knew lots about corals and, invertebr- and, and invertebrates, and, and lots is a relative term, in places that are flat, you know, the uh, abyssal plain, you know, uh, uh, continental rise that's relatively flat, uh, but not in these seamounts. So uh, my colleagues began a, a, a long and productive uh effort to put names on things. And, you know, we often think we have, we know the name, we, we, there's not a lot left to explore. Well, and I talked to my students that right off the Northeast U.S., in one of the most well-studied parts of the ocean, you know, California current 
system being another and the North Sea being another of the deep ocean, we can still find big things that don't have names. You know, and on these seamounts, you know, we found a we found a coral that's about uh, uh, you know almost nine feet high when it's unspiraled. You know, these beautiful, colorful organisms that uh, we didn't know in the past existed or how they're distributed. Even was it last year? Last year, we were part of, as part of a, a NOAA ocean exploration cruise, we dove on the furthest seamount within the U.S. EEZ. It's now part of the Northeast uh, Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument and found this ridge that was just covered with these giant, uh, giant-sized corals and beautiful sponges. Uh, and these are just places that we've never been before. So we're kind of pioneering routes. Uh, you know, it's kind of like climbing mountains from the top down. And so, so these are examples of the kind of diversity that we would find on seamounts and in other precipitous environments elsewhere in the global ocean. And we're still finding these places, and there are many places with unique species that evolved under different conditions that potentially have, beyond our stewardship responsibilities for conserving diversity, there's potentially biomedical and, and industrial process types of chemicals that could be found in these organisms uh, and we just don't want to, you know, blow them away with with uh, reckless abandon, uh, with without any kind of rules about how we utilize this part of the global ocean that belongs to all of us. Peter, the Seamounts Marine National Monument you referred to is that totally underwater, and it's a national monument. Can the general public go out there and see it? Well, so uh, yes, it's a national monument. It is totally underwater. Uh, people can go out and do, and, and in fact, friends of mine do it, go out and do pelagic seabird, pelagic birding, uh, 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 whale watching kinds of activities. Uh, people can see when we're out there, uh, again, through the NOAA Ocean Exploration Program and others, we broadcast live from the seafloor when, when we're operating in that, in that area and, and have a, a huge audience uh, to, to, to be part of these scientific expeditions. Uh, in the longer term, the idea of having, you know, cameras and buoys and data on the sea to, that are collected on the seafloor that people just log in and see what's going on is under discussion. Uh, there's still in, 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 the, in the beginning stages of developing a management plan after uh, President Biden restored uh, protections for the area just this last fall. When were those protections taken away? Uh, they were taken away. So the monument was designated in 2016 by President Obama. Uh, and then President Trump didn't, uh, didn't uh, uh, undesignate. That's probably not the right word. I'm obviously not an English major. Uh, but remove, remove protections from fishing, uh, in, uh, commercial-scale fishing, uh, from the monument. And then President Biden reached, uh, reached uh, a couple of years later, and then President Biden Biden restored them. So we're kind of back, back to to where we were. This is only like 0.5 percent of our of the U.S. EEZ of our of our exclusive economic zone, and there had been uh, very little uh, fishing activity there in the past. Uh, and so there's there had been a series of, of uh, legal complaints. Uh, and there's yet another one uh, that is making its, making its way through uh, the court system now. 
Peter, what do you see as the timetable for this treaty, the Biodiversity and Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty? Do you expect it to be passed this year or in the next couple of months, or is this going to drag on for a while? So this is so I, I think it depends on the schedule of the UN. I'm not sure. So the so right now so the the process has been for uh, nations to submit proposals for changing the language of the text. And so the idea for uh, that began in 2018 was to have a series of four uh, intergovernmental meetings to hash out the details. This one this past August was the fifth, and they still made progress. There's still just more to do. I am not sure what the schedule is for, for meeting again. It's certainly not abandoned, uh, and I think everybody left with the idea that we can get to the finish line. I'm just not sure what the schedule is. I would imagine, given that it's already uh, October, that this is going to move move on into next year. And I think the the the, the key here is that uh, is to not give up, uh, and and we need to come to, to come to, to an agreement where. Uh, there, you know that that it's fair, balanced, and and most importantly implementable. Having a bunch of rules that just that are simply such a, a, more, uh, a complex that we're not going to be able to do it doesn't doesn't solve the actual problems. And as uh, the chairperson said, let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So we still just need that 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 uh, to 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 you know put our put heads together. Uh, and uh, and work and work out this language. My 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 input, uh, to, you know, to this was was through a, a, a intergovernmental organization and, and dealing with the language. My own area of expertise is in the protected area realm. The genetic resources uh, elements in the capacity building, or I believe to other smart people. Interesting topic that most of us don't know much about. Coastal waters like those at Yukon Every Point are governed by local, state, and national laws 200 miles from shore. It's a very different story. Our guest, Peter Oster, Yukon Research Professor Emeritus in Marine Sciences and Senior Research Scientist at Mystic Aquarium. Peter, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for your interest. Greatly appreciated. 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.